You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 77. And today we're asking the question, what does good look like? Let's get started. Hi, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So, Drew, what's today's question? David, today we're going to be talking about a paper that, for a refreshing change, actually specifies its research question right up front. And the paper says that it's about what good looks like in healthcare. Listeners who've been with us along the whole journey may remember that back in episode 14, we discussed high reliability organizations. And at that time, we reviewed a 2005 paper that talked about what are the characteristics of high reliability organizations in healthcare. Um, I went back and had to look at our notes, and I can see, David, that we weren't very complimentary about the method they applied in that paper. It was a bit of a retrospective where people from the organization were looking back and patting themselves on the back for what a good job they'd done introducing HRO theory. And I think that's a bit of a risk when we come to trying to identify good, is that obviously the people who want to say that their organizations are good and not exactly the most impartial people, and people trying to pick out good organizations don't always have easy ways of telling who is good and who's not, unless they already have some fixed idea in their head of what good looks like. Your thoughts, David? I don't know if you can remember the episode. Yeah, no, I absolutely can. I think also the authors were writing the paper almost because they were critical of the changes that had been made in the organization over the 18 months where performance in their eyes had deteriorated. And they were almost reminiscing about the good old days of when their organization was high performing and the things that were different to today. So that's my recollection of that episode, Drew. Yeah. So as, as a general rule, when people tell you, oh, this organization was great when we were there and bad when we weren't, uh, they could well be right, but it's not exactly a rigorous research methodology. I, I'm hoping that the paper that David found for us today is a bit more rigorous, but it still follows that general HRO principle, which is that we do research by finding an organization that seems to be managing safety well, and we try to describe and understand what's going on, what is producing the apparently good results and what is producing the apparent high performance. And more recently, Drew, in episode 74, we discussed the capacity index and we were somewhat critical of that paper as well. So hopefully new, new listeners don't form the view that we're critical of every of the resource for every episode that we do. But this paper actually does what we suggested in episode 74, which is the starting point for monitoring the presence of safety is to actually understand those capacities or characteristics or features of frontline work that create and maintain safety and then work back from there in terms of your, your measurement and your activity and your safety management systems once you know what it takes to create safety on the front line. So the article that we're going to talk about today, Drew, that you've mentioned is um, aiming to do just that. So let's jump right into the paper. It's called Seven Features of Safety in Maternity Units a framework based on multi-site ethnography and stakeholder consultation, which is an incredibly boring, but really quite honest title. <laughs> a paper does what it says on the tin, and it reports what it claims in the title. It's, it's got a huge number of authors. I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, in fact, it's got about nine listed authors, and then the last author 
is a thing called the Scaling Authorship Group, which has another 20 or so authors, which I think this is a really promising trend given some of the problems with peer review. What we've got is basically pre-publication review from a large number of people. Some of them were involved actually during the writing of the paper in critically looking at how the authors were interpreting their transcripts and their data and sort of looking for contrary evidence to improve and flesh out the theories. And then some of them are more of a large group of people that the paper was sent to after it was written to provide commentary and feedback. Um, and so we complain sometimes about the fact that things slip through peer review when they just have two or three people reviewing it. Here's where the authors have in fact selected a large group of qualified people to be involved in that polishing process before they even submitted it. They've actually forgot to write down where this was published. I think it was probably BMJ Quality and Safety. Yeah, it was BMJ Quality and Safety and Professor Mary Dixon Woods was the corresponding author. She seemed to be coordinating the whole, either the grant funding or the whole uh, the whole piece of work. Yeah, so Professor Dixon Woods is head of the research centre that did this work. She's an expert in healthcare quality and improvement. Uh, she's got a strong focus on qualitative research methods. And then the first author of the paper, who I gather did a lot of the sort of practical work in putting the paper together, uh, is Dr. Eliza Liberati, who's an experienced postdoc ethnographer in healthcare. And there seems to have been a sort of multi-year funded project to do this ethnography. A lot of Dr. Liberati's recent research, not surprisingly, is ethnography of healthcare during COVID. Um, and this work was done actually before that sort of other publication. Yeah, Drew, the data collection was, I think, 2014 to 2017. It was almost as, as if the first part of, of the study had already been published in 2019 and, and then extended on. So it might have been a PhD research that was then followed up postdoc into a much broader study or something like that, because the data collection was a very extended period of time. So in terms of ethnography, this is exactly the type of thing that we want to see if you're trying to describe what's going on and what good, where the good is coming from. David, you've included a little bit of a quote just at the start of the method. I just wonder if you'd like to give us the quote and talk about why you picked that one out. Yeah, so I picked it out because I, I like the way the authors had suggested or understood at least that the forces that create positive conditions for safety in frontline work may be at least partially invisible to those who create them because they remain this tacit or habitualized uh, ways of working. And so you have to have some kind of structured study to surface them. So if you just ask people, for example, in a questionnaire, uh, what are the things that you do to make sure that your work is safe every day? They won't necessarily maybe unconsciously even be aware of all of those things that they do in relation to communication or observation or interaction or um, or planning um, or anticipation, all of these things that they they do throughout their day through experience or routine without maybe consciously thinking, oh, I'm doing this so that I can be safe. So you might end up getting scriptive responses instead that says, I follow the procedure or I draw on my training or I report hazards. Uh, and so this study, I suppose, Drew framed what they already knew, which was the only way to come at or the only way to be able to describe something that we're trying to describe is to have a uh, a large ethnographic type of design. So the ethnographers in this case are outsiders. The authorship group is made up of people who are sociologists of healthcare. They're in universities. They're not in teaching hospitals. So they've got a good understanding of how healthcare works, but they're not themselves closely enough linked to the particular hospitals that they're 
they're not just cheerleaders for the sites that they're talking about. And there's basically three steps to the research. The first one involves a thing they call an index site. So this is going to be their main example of good. And they used a few different ways of saying that this is a place that is doing safety well. Um, some of them are just on terms of outcome statistics. So they've got a really low, this is a maternity ward, I should say. Um, they've got a really low rate of birth complications. They've got a number of outcome measures for babies that they have sustained improvements on. They've got other statistical things like staff survey results about teamwork, culture and job satisfaction. And then also this place has been recognised by other places. So in fact, there's a particular training program that's been developed based on this particular paternity ward that has been rolled out to other hospitals. So that's a sort of good sign that there's a number of reasons to genuinely believe that this is a high-performing organisation. So that's step one is the index site. We're going to do ethnography there. Um, step two is branching out to five further sites. Now, these ones haven't been particularly selected as being high-performing, but they're all ones which are trying to copy the original site. They've adopted the training program that was produced based on the first site. So you would expect to see some features in common, some features different, and use that as a good way of understanding what is actually special about the index site, what can be successfully copied from the index site and replicated elsewhere. And then the final step they've labelled as stakeholder consultation. So this is basically feeding back to people what they think that they've found from the research, presenting it to them tentatively to get feedback. So from the data gathering stage, we have observations, just watching what's going on. Uh, we have semi-structured interviews. And then the stakeholder consultation is based on a larger number of interviews and a focus group. So through those three steps, we're basically following a process in qualitative research known as constant testing. You sort of start by forming a theory of what you think is what's going on, and then you just collect more and more data to test and refine what it is that you're finding, constantly looking for what have I not got quite right, what have I thought I've seen but haven't actually seen, until eventually you're producing something that the people that you're studying agree, yes, this describes us correctly. Yeah, Drew, and there's... There was a lot of data gathered. So the initial work at the index site was, you know, collected more data than the follow-up five sites, but they still had a total of over 400 hours of observation data and, and 33 interviews across those sites. And then the stakeholder consultation wasn't a small exercise. They, they conducted 65 interviews and one focus group, and they went to a whole diversity of professional roles. They interviewed uh, users of the services, so people that had, you know, given birth inside those maternity wards, they spoke to middle and upper management. They spoke to policymakers from the NHS, so the National Health Service. They spoke to frontline clinicians, so nurses and midwives and others and, and doctors from other sites that weren't in the initial six that were observed, as well as the professional bodies like the Royal College of Midwives and things like that. So they're really trying to cast net and sat and with two purposes, I suppose. One, Drew, to do that member checking, which is, which is like, does this make sense? Uh, outside of the sites that we we collected the data from. And the second is to just understand the ways that different stakeholders talk about these particular features that create safety for the purpose of developing a framework that uses more plain language or more generalizable language so that it, it can be understood by more stakeholders. So just to give an indication, 400 hours of observation and 100 interviews in total is huge for a qualitative project. 
you know, there are plenty of quite good PhDs that are based on 20 interviews or at least 20 participants as their sort of core data. So having 100 interviews is oh, just the time taken if you were to hand transcribe those interviews. You would, but yeah, just, just even conducting those interviews, analyzing them, doing the observation, that's a huge amount of data that's building in, particularly since it seems to be just sort of one paper out of this work so far. D David, your, th your thoughts on? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, the, you've got the logistics and administration of, of coordinating the interviews. And I think in this paper, well, this paper, they reported a 54% uh, participation rate in people that they reached out to. So to get those 100 interviews, they would have tried to coordinate 200 to actually do 100. And then you've got to conduct them anywhere, probably 30 to 45 minutes for a semi-structured interview. And then you're right, Drew, the transcribing, but the analysis. To do the technique, the analysis technique they mentioned, which is that progressive comparison or constant comparative method where you read one, then you read the second one. What's the same or different about the first one? What's the new information? Now I need to go back to the first one and check if that information's in there or not, then go to the third one, then go back to the second, back to the first. You need to go through each transcript maybe a dozen times as you're building out your themes. So that's a huge analytic effort. And I think most of it was done by about two or three people. So that's a full-time research team, I think, maybe for 18 months on this study. David, I realise I made a small mistake that, in fact, they have published on this work before. They published a preliminary paper, I think, based on their study of the index site before they did the comparison. So, in fact, we can see sort of what they found from the index site and then how they then evolved and changed that as they continued the work through the rest of the project, uh, which is a good example of sort of showing you working so you can see how the ideas evolved um, and that they didn't just lock into a single single. Um, theory, but that they have actually tested it, refined it, changed it based on the remainder of the work. Absolutely. So Drew, can we, are we right to go into the findings now? Sure. So, so the way you've got it listed in our notes, David, is talking about what they thought they'd seen from the index site first and then expanding out to the final version. Do you want to just sort of talk through in that? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting because it, it goes to a couple of things. It goes to how it changed once they went beyond the index site to not just confirm what they were doing at the index site, but to actually deepen what they learned at the index site. And the second thing is to see how the language changed when they when they did the broader study as well as all of the stakeholder consultations. So when they went to this first site that Drew had mentioned had good outcome statistics, good climate um, conditions, good uh, recognition across the industry as just being a high-performing site, including safety, or particularly around, around patient safety outcomes particularly, they identified six features or themes of, of what was going on to create safety. So I'm just going to read through these six and we can read them like the five principles of high reliability organizations or something like that. But these were these six uh, features. The first was collective competence. The second was insistence on technical proficiency. The third was monitoring, coordinated and distributed cognition. The fourth was clearly articulated and constantly reinforced standards of practice, behavior and ethics. The fifth was monitoring multiple sources of intelligence about the unit's state of safety. And the sixth was a highly intentional approach to safety and improvement. So they're the six features, Drew. Uh, the good thing about this paper, it goes in to explain what it means by each of those six. But your thoughts on, on those initial findings? Let's dive into the descriptions of each one, because I think there's some really interesting details once we flesh them out from just motherhood statements into... Uh, descriptions. Um, so the first one is collective competence. And it's interesting that in the sort of longer text for these, 
it sounds very HRO. They say professional boundaries are managed flexibly with deference to expertise rather than hierarchy. Uh, collegial behaviours, strong social ties amongst staff, interdependency. So that's very similar to HRO's idea of deference to expertise and sensitivity to the front line is instead of a hierarchical view, we've got this idea of interdisciplinary routines with mutual respect. Yeah, Andrew, so so this technical proficiency, it talked about a very high standard proficiency expected in tasks, but talked about high, high fidelity structured training um, combined with informal learning and mentoring. So it talked a lot about what we know about simulation-based training and, and, and training that really matches the real world tasks, but also talked about in this index site, there was lots of informal mentoring that went on in lunchrooms that were observed. So people would ask others uh, professional opinions in the lunchroom and, and allow themselves to be taught and mentored and coached. And that was sort of common social interaction that went on in um, in the hospital informally. Yeah, to, to be honest, David, I'm reading this and I'm thinking of the horror that might come from someone trying to deliberately replicate the, this culture of proficiency. Because it sounds like that this is almost like a generationally transmitted habits of the way that they you know, include people in legitimate peripheral tasks while more difficult things are going on to build up their competency. They model having these conversations and sort of informal pre-task reviews and after-action reviews happening in the lunchroom, which all sounds fantastic unless an organisation was trying to do those deliberately and introduce a process or a competency scheme for managing this, in which case I imagine it would all fall apart very quickly. Yeah, I think we will talk about some of those challenges in the in the practical takeaways, I suspect. So, Drew, in the, in the third one about monitoring, coordination and distributed cognition, uh, they talk about having mechanisms to maintain a shared awareness of the external situation in the maternity union. So how staff play coordinating roles in, in controlling the function of the entire ward and how that information is sort of shared and um, understood by others. So that's also a description of very informal practices. David, could you give a little bit more of an explanation of some of the content in the paper about that one? Because I, I find this very interesting at surface level. It seems almost like you've got this emergent system, but they've put in place people with deliberate functions of watching everything that's going on. Yeah, and I think also there was references that were that were made to like even the use of whiteboards so every maternity ward had like a whiteboard to do patient monitoring and updates and it was more about just how many different people had contributed to notes on individual patients on whiteboards and things like that to show this kind of like shared um, coordination and distributed cognition that was going on for each individual situation so so any healthcare unit would have to have this same shared awareness, the difference in this place is that they've put in place these explicit tools for facilitating it. You know, the whiteboard practices, the having people in control room style functions. It reminds me a little bit about how the school manager in our uh, university department tends to sit at the receptionist desk instead of hidden in an office away, just because you know, that little step of having someone who is visible and in the centre watching what's going on helps information flow much more easily around the department. So just sort of like small structural steps that help that distributed cognition. So Drew, the fourth one there is the clearly articulated and constantly reinforced standards of practice, behaviour and ethics. So this is about how collectively all members of the team articulate and reinforce through role modelling the norms and, and expected practices of everyone in the team. So the collective lack of compromise on 
you know, important professional routines and, and actions. David, let me just give you a quote from this one, and you tell me whether you think it describes a high reliability organisation or the most draconian place ever to work. Staff make positive use of social control mechanisms to ensure that other people behave in a way that is aligned with the unit's standards. That could either be like really, really good or really, really bad, um, depending on exactly how well it happened. Yeah, it reminds me, although social control mechanisms are really interesting choice of language there, Drew. It reminds me of a, of a case study that I read about uh, prison guards and maintaining order within within prisons. And there's no way that the prison guards can control prisoners through rules and procedures. So it was this study that that talked about how prison guards provide you know, minor concessions and things like cigarettes and, and other things to prisoners to make their life just a little bit easier and a little bit better in return for those prisoners, you know, following the rules and and not not creating really difficult situations for the guards. So it's this sort of like social exchange type of theory going on here. And maybe that's a little bit the same here. Maybe high reliability organisations don't seek those standards of practice from enforcement of rules and requirements, but they seek those standards of practice through this kind of like collective social influence or expectation that gets followed uh, because it gets followed because everyone expects it and everyone does it. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how one little word, social control mechanisms, you replace that with behavioral control mechanisms. <laughs> or procedural control me mechanisms or um, disciplinary control mechanisms. So the next one is monitoring multiple sources of intelligence. Um, so they talk about having many different forms of data used to sense problems. Fairly standard, you know, using of routine clinical data, to, uh, but making it available to all staff rather than just someone sitting in an office monitoring the statistics. Uh, using soft intelligence such as patients' feedback and staff ground knowledge to learn and improve safety. Um, I think that's a big one. A lot of the healthcare scandals, particularly in the UK where this study has, was created, one of the things that's come out is just how much that patients and families were trying to raise issues and being ignored by the medical staff. Um, so they're talking here about explicitly using that feedback, not as a public relations issue, but as a source of intelligence, as a source of data to identify problems. And we see here, Drew, the, um, the use of the word psychological safety as well uh, on this one, which is that openness and listening and, and what we all know to be important in safety within all, within all organizations. And so the last one here, Drew, is this highly intentional approach to safety and improvement so that commitment to safety is, is collectively pursued and it's also socially legitimized. So everyone in the team uh, values and prioritizes this intentional approach to safety and, and operational improvement. So it, I think here, Drew, we're seeing this, this, it not being about the bureaucracy and the compliance, but it's this uh, socially legitimized expectation that uh, we do things for a purpose and we do them to a level of quality. They haven't used the word resilience here. I didn't actually do a search, but I don't recall them using the word resilience throughout the paper. They certainly haven't applied a resilience theory lens at all. But what they're talking about here sounds very much like a very conscious attempt to be resilient. So doing things like identifying in advance that something's going to be a risky situation and then making sure that we're ready for that situation. Um, doing things like monitoring for small signs that things are deteriorating and taking early action to put in extra resources or more experienced staff into those places to sort out the problems early. 
So very much this idea about sort of preparing for disruption, recognizing early signs of disruption, recovery back to normal. Um, but doing that very explicitly in the way they're managing things, including with some formal risk management processes built around it, not just expecting resilience to be there as a grassroots thing. Yeah, Drew, look, I think um, what we know from, well, one of the principles of HRO about that commitment to resilience or, say, Eric Holnagel's the um, resilient potentials in resilience engineering around um, anticipating and responding. Uh, they do mention resilience engineering in the conclusion where they just talk about uh, the the features of safety that they identified have strong conceptual ties to the HRO literature and the resilience engineering literature. So they make that acknowledgement in, in the conclusion. So David, should we move on to how they then refined these things once they got into the later studies? So the ones we've given so far were from that first study looking at the one place. And so by going to extra places, they can work out how much of those things, I guess, are real but also see what's actually important because they can see where other organizations have tried to replicate some of those things and look at where it hasn't, hasn't worked well and work out sort of what features of the, that original one are the most important to replicate or what might they have sort of missed in their initial description. I mean, I think a good example of that is the very first one where they've really expanded on what they meant by competence. Um, and so in fact, I sort of moving from six to seven, it's not quite as simple as just like splitting one into two, is it? They're really sort of seven new principles, but competence is now sort of spread across a few different principles. Yeah, Drew, you're right. They have really sliced and diced this. If we, When we talked about those descriptions just before, we talked about three or four different components to those six, those six themes, if you like, or six features. And now they've got seven and, and we're seeing the emergence of things at a higher level, which were previously sort of buried in a different one, like this idea of teamwork becomes a feature in itself rather than sort of within that monitoring, coordination, distributed cognition thing. And we're seeing this ability to mobilize quickly that you mentioned there at the end, Drew, being pulled right up into a top level theme. So they have really like they've 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 recut the whole thematic analysis and re-emerged with seven new features. You can see that uh, familiar resemblance through it all, but it's it's a, it's a very new set. So should we go just go through this new set uh, one by one again, David? Yeah, let's do let's do that. I don't know how much detail you want to go into, Drew. The good thing about this paper, which we haven't mentioned, is it is open access, so any we'll be able to link it in the show notes, and anyone can go and read the whole paper, which I would strongly recommend uh, anyone involved in safety to do. But let's go through these seven, Drew. Should we pause on each one and have a brief conversation about it? Well, there's certainly some things here I'd like to highlight. So, so the first one is a commitment to safety and improvement at all levels. And yes, so some gems sort of buried in here. So the first one is sort of within this commitment to safety and improvement, the idea that there's an authentic commitment to learning from risky situations and adverse events. And I think the authentic there does a lot of work because almost every organization has got processes for learning from risk and learning from adverse events. But very often those processes don't translate into actual learning. And I think also, Drew, in here, buried in, in this description, and, and people, when you do read this article, uh, you'll see all of the detail right down to the activity level. So in this, they talk about also having risk management processes like audits and risk assessment processes that are known, trusted, and used by all staff. So some of those words about you know having processes that are trusted uh, is kind of really important for that commitment. Um, collective commitment. Another one that's in there is staff investing in making the unit better. So this is 
like just non-management staff finding ways to improve working processes. Um, they talk about small-scale, easily actionable ideas. And the fact that staff feel free to do this, they get praised for doing this, they feel that it's part of their job to do this, is, is a sign that people are going well beyond sort of procedures and rules and taking initiative to improve safety. So Drew, the second one is now technical competence supported by formal training and informal learning. So really here we're, we've sort of, rather than collective confidence, we're going, okay, let's let's talk about the technical competence um, of, of the whole unit. So it's all about making sure, but, but this competence is not just, oh, well, we've got training programs. It's all about having opportunities to for all staff to be debriefed, to ask questions after experiencing like complex clinical situations, having social spaces accessible to all staff that support informal knowledge sharing, like we mentioned earlier, Drew. So we could, we could very easily be lulled into saying, oh, technical competence, technical competence, yeah, we do that in our organisation. But I sort of encourage you to read the detail here. Yeah, David, my favourite part about this one is that the coffee room, which was previously, you mentioned it, but it was buried within the text of the paper, has now been elevated to part of the sort of formal description of this feature. It's just having, it doesn't have to be a coffee room, they say sort of any communal social space accessible to all staff. And I just encourage listeners, just imagine your own organisations and imagine, do you have that space? And immediately I'm thinking of my own offices where we don't. We've got like three separate little coffee cubicles and which one you hang out on depends which one your office is closest to and different sort of groups of staff will congregate in their own spaces. Um, so I guess we fail on that one immediately, just the lack of a shared communal space that everyone uses. And then I suppose, Drew, even if you built a really nice space, like in some organisations and some offices that we see now, and those spaces are just empty all day. So I think there's one need is to have the space, but then the second need is that people want to spend time there. And then when they are spending time there, that they engage in these informal learning and sharing activities, which is, you know, in one part, having the infrastructure, but probably in more part, having the having the climate that, that creates that. So Drew, the third is teamwork, cooperation, and positive working relationships. Do you want to highlight anything in that description? Most of this stuff here, I think, is pretty much what you'd expect. Uh, the idea that by working and training together, people are aware of each other's roles, aware of sort of skills and competency. And that ability to access the competence of other people increases the overall organisational competence. Uh, there's words there about sort of respecting each other and valuing other people's contributions, looking after each other. Some explicit words about recognising disruptive or bullying behaviours and managing them effectively. You're sort of caring about staff and caring about how staff care about each other. And also drew in here about um, that when deciding who should perform a task, that you know skill and experience are more important than seniority. And also that any differences in opinion between professions or roles are settled sort of openly through uh, reference to shared goals. So bring the team back together, you know, recognising the value of diversity of thought and alignment around shared goals. So, so this one flows, I think, fairly naturally into the next one, which is about reinforcing of safe, ethical and respectful behaviours. Uh, so I think we already talked about there was quite a similar one in the previous list of six. Yeah, there was. Yeah. But this now sort of spells out explicitly what it means for social reinforcement of these things. Um, so it mentions, for example, that errors are considered both problems and as opportunities for learning. So people are encouraged to discuss errors openly, but still to surface them and make sure that things are taken to prevent them reoccurring. 
um, talks about how newcomers are treated, how they're sort of socialized to the unit's high standards, but also how their own previous experience is respected. You know, they're not just treated as newcomers. It's like, um, you're welcome to our place, look at the standards here, but also if you've got something from your last place that you'd like to bring here, then by all means tell us about it. Yeah, Andrew, then the, the fifth one here is having multiple problem-sensing systems used as the basis for action. So there's a bit in here about speaking up for safety and, and people having the confidence that, that any concerns they have will be heard and action will be taken. We've got this reference to psychological safety, which is carried through from the from the first set of six from the index site. Unlike last time, we're now explicitly mentioning patients' families. So last time it was just your patient feedback. Now we're talking about families being encouraged to share their experience, both in real time, so while they're there and also afterwards, and seeing that feedback from families as key to improving care. Number six, Drew, systems and processes designed for safety and regularly reviewed and optimised. So we didn't hear too much about formal systems and processes other than having those the value and the trust in those risk assessment and audit processes. But this seems like we've got a bit more formal safety going on in the analysis of the of the broader sites. Yeah, I find it interesting which systems they talk about here, David. So, you know, what you might imagine when you talk about systems and processes, and then you look at the detail here, it's about making sure that equipment and the physical environment are designed consistent with human factors and ergonomics principles. Making sure that we have simulated new systems and processes to check that they actually work the way they're supposed to work before we implement them. So it's easy to sort of just jump on the idea of, oh, we've got systems and processes. But in fact, the sort of key here is the fit for purpose of those things and the human factors testing of the systems and processes. And then the processes which are most important are the ones which in turn test the human factors of the equipment and of other processes. And you're right, Drew, there's not much talk in here of the quality and safety processes. It's like the examples include the scheduling process for the operating theatre and certain availability of medical supplies and the usability of the, the technology and equipment that's procured and those sorts of things. So it really is about work as done and the tools and processes that, that are involved in the planning and execution of work. And then the final one is fairly similar to the last one in that it's again highlighting the resilience They've called it here effective coordination and the ability to mobilise quickly. So they've talked about having well-functioning IT systems. Uh, the whiteboards get a special mention now in place to share information quickly. Uh, they talk about things like structured handovers and safety huddles in order to make sure that we're sharing information about what's going on. Talking about having those control room settings again, special individuals who've got specific responsibility for patient flow and coordination between the different care settings. Um, anything else you want to highlight there, David? Just the, I suppose, just the the planning and preparation that goes into the ability to uh, sense, respond, and mobilise quickly. So simulation-based training, structured emergency protocols. Uh, you know, I like the way they said allowing staff to be both competent and confident in responding to sort of any crises. So that investment ahead of time is recognised as a strong feature of safety. So, so, David, as we move out of the list of seven, I've got a sort of general observation, which is how many of these things are very healthcare-specific? So I could imagine our listeners hearing this list and saying, yeah, but that, that's not me because I don't do healthcare, You're including patients' families. You're, what's that got to do with operating on a construction site? So when we're identifying good here, it's not just a sort of general abstract, this is what good safety looks like. It really is what good safety looks like in a maternity ward 
And in fact, some of the assumptions in here about how things work may in fact not even just be healthcare. They may be very specific to this type of healthcare. Yeah, Drew, I, I like the authors dance around this topic a, a little bit. They don't they don't make any sort of strong digs at people or, or, or other theorists. But what they say is that what is really important is to produce descriptions of what good looks like that's specific to particular domains and contexts, and even in their case, specific areas of care. So they're not even claiming that this is a healthcare set of features. They're saying this is a potential set of features for maternity care facilities within the broader healthcare sector. And they're thinking that this is more effective than operating at a level of generality where we might say, okay, well, the resilience engineering potentials are monitor, anticipate, respond, or learn, and learn, or the HRO5 principles. And I think that's really good that they've they've done that because if listeners remember a discussion that I had with uh, Yop Havinga in episode 75 on stopping work, we had that discussion about the difference between maybe how stopping work happens in, say, the aviation sector versus how maybe stopping work happens in the utility sector. So these seven may or may not be relevant for other domains or contexts, but the purpose or the message in the paper is go and find out for yourself what is relevant and important in your context. Um, yes, no, no, I agree with that absolutely. I think the more that you generalise, the more you create something that's easy to spread around and dare I say to sort of sell as a consultancy service or sell as an idea. But the ability to spread and generalise doesn't make it useful to all of those places that are receiving that wisdom. Whereas you know, the more specific it is, the more directly useful it is for other organisations. Yeah, Andrew, this is, a, this is a little bit different to our more common approach in safety and in large organisations, which is, which is you know, standardisation and generalisation. Well, it's a different approach. Let's just call it a different approach. A few more things, Drew, and then we'll do some practical takeaways. Uh, they, this is not a checklist. So the authors don't make it, they actually say that these seven features are really tightly coupled. They're interdependent. They're mutually reinforcing. We can't look at these seven things, any of these seven things in isolation from the other six, because they all kind of create the safety at a system level. And we need to look at all of those features being present. And what they conclude was that just to, you know, I suppose a, a large extent, all of those seven features were present in the index site, but then across the other sites, they were only present in various levels uh, and various combinations across those seven features. The authors also caution about ignoring those structural factors like staffing levels and the availability of equipment and the physical environment, which is that discussion that we had around the systems and processes being designed for safety. And maybe that's why that's, uh, made its way into a top level theme as well, because it's the authors know there's not enough just to say create these team factors if they're using poor equipment with not enough resources. Yeah, if, if there's one sort of weakness with this ethnographic approach, is that we're describing what good looks like, not how to get good. And so it, it's there's a really, I think, dangerous and difficult step in translating from this is good to this is what other people should do. And the, the authors cross that line a little bit. They do actually suggest that you could use some of these ideas for purposive improvement. In other words, you could take some of this stuff and try to make yourself better by following it. And then they reference a couple of citations which they say are evidence that this can be done. I actually tracked down the papers because I was a bit sceptical and both of those other papers weren't nearly as good as this one. 
they were basically talking about attempts to improve culture in healthcare organizations. And the evidence at best was if you try to improve culture, you can improve culture, which is very different from saying if you try to become like this organization, you can become like this organization with the same safety improvements. Um, and the analogy I'd use is it's like looking at a good football team and saying, you know, what makes this a good football team? Oh, it's that the fact that the guys are all tough. OK, so I'm going to make people tough without ever realizing that, in fact, maybe good diet was what got them to be good tough. And you can't see any of that good diet. You know, maybe what made this organization display all of these things is the fact that senior management had extra staff in this organization. And with that extra staff and time, people had the attention to devote to all of these things. And maybe the reason other organizations don't replicate it is they simply don't have the time to do all of these extra things for safety and for information sharing. It's like observing the output and then all you can do is make assumptions a lot of the time about the inputs and the processes that have created those outputs. Yeah, and I think sometimes those assumptions will be valid. And I think some of those, sometimes those assumptions will be well off base. So an example I'd draw out is that I think some of the stuff about how people in this organization share information Absolutely, you could look at that and say, you know, maybe we could deliberately and tentatively try to do some of this in our own organization. Um, we notice that people are writing stuff out on, up on whiteboards to share stuff. And we look at our own organization and there just is no space for people to share information. Maybe we could give them one. But maybe in your organization, a whiteboard would be an incredibly silly idea. So just, you know, giving everyone whiteboards because this organization uses whiteboards wouldn't make sense. And then the whole sort of social psychology and change aspects of that about having those whiteboards done to people versus done with people and did they choose the whiteboards and do they even value the use of them and um, is it a compliance activity or is it a value-added work activity there's lots of complexity into in it's one thing like you say Drew, it's one thing to observe something performing well and then describe the the things that you observe and and that you think are, are creating it to work well but it's a whole different thing to then try and make something work well that's not currently yes so so that That's not a reason not to do this sort of work. I think this type of work is incredibly valuable. It's not a reason to not take this work and try to see what you can learn from it for your own organization. It's just that any step once you start translating from describing to trying to do yourself should be done just as humbly and as tentatively as the original work was done. We don't want to translate this into seven principles for how to be a good maternity ward that then becomes the seven principles of safety that then instantly becomes seven principles for managing safety on construction sites with no thought for how the ideas adapt and change. And So Drew, let's talk about some practical takeaways then. So one's, one's a sort of a general caution, a bit following on from what you said. So in every domain, in every context, there's going to be features and capacities that create and maintain safety on the front line. So we've got these broad theories like that's referenced in this paper, resilience engineering or high reliability organization theory that gives us some broad categories and high level descriptions of what some of these features might be. And this study demonstrates that, you know, it may be possible to pick very specific settings like a maternity, uh, maternity care within the, the healthcare sector and identify the features of safety right down to these things like the placement and use of whiteboards for communication and things like that. So that should practically give us a lot of uh, inspiration and motivation to look at our own organizational settings and try to understand what are those features on the front line that might be creating uh, reliable performance. Um, so another takeaway is that th this is a sort of call for safety professionals to reflect on how well you understand what safety looks like in your own organization. 
And David, I think you've noted here that only two of the seven features are things that are directly influenced by the safety management system. The other five are really sort of things that exist in that frontline ecosystem. Um, they exist in the spaces and in the people and in the processes that are below the level of things which are formally managed. Yeah, Drew. So just having a look about, again, practical takeaways, and I was starting to think what 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 our listeners might do and take. And yeah, two of those seven features, one technical competence was at least in part something that might be influenced by the management system, but not the informal uh, you know, sharing of information and coaching. And also then the systems and processes, so that usability, human factors, fit for purpose, uh, equipment and resourcing levels. But all of the other uh, features you know, that, were, that are claimed to be the creators of safety are, uh, are social, are about climate, are about team dynamics and sociological type factors. And, and those things aren't things that you write down and, and, and create through safety management systems. They're created very differently in organisations. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, what safety should do with this sort of information? Is it the job of safety to try to support these things? Is it the job of safety to just ignore them and say, well, these are great, but they're not our responsibility, let's not touch them? Is it the job of safety to try to bring them into the formal systems? Um, I'm asking those as rhetorical questions because I think the answer would be different on a very case-by-case basis. But it is something that we should stop and think about. This is important for safety. Do I want to touch it? Do I want to help it? Do I want to try to own it? And on a case-by-case basis, think about what value do we add as safety people? And I think for a lot of these things, maybe there are structural ways we can support them. And for others, they're sort of very dangerous to try to tinker with them at all. Yeah, so Drew, that's a great area to make an invitation to our listeners. So so for those who, who want to contribute to, to this discussion, have you done anything to understand, you know, the frontline features of safety in your organisation? And are you doing anything to try to enhance, the, you know, the tacit knowledge and the informal ways of working uh, that are creating kind of reliable and safe performance day in, day out. So, you know, are you doing anything specific in your context, in, in your domain? Um, would love to hear about it. And so, Drew, if I fire the last question to you, the title of this episode was, what does good look like? And so your answer, what does good look like? Good is not something that we should overgeneralize about, David. We have an open source paper. It's easy to read. The results are in tables. Go and look at good for yourself, either in your organization or if you're interested in maternity wards in healthcare in this particular paper. Perfect, Drew. Good for you might be different than good for me. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 